Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the wonderful privilege of speaking with Bill Knowles. Bill is currently the Director of Reconditioning and Athletic Development for HP Sports. He is a consultant to many professional college sports teams throughout the world and many high-performing athletes from teams in almost every league around the globe. Bill is a pioneer in the world of reconditioning, a practice near and dear to my own heart. It is a unique blend of the powers of therapeutic practice and the methods of performance preparation that results in more robust and higher performing athletes. I've asked Bill on to leave your mark because he most certainly has walked a path of change agent and innovator, and his mark on the lives of elite and amateur sports athletes is more than evident. I am honored to have him on the show today. Welcome, Bill. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be here. Yeah. Um, first question for you is you work with a lot of international athletes and walk into a lot of sports dressing rooms. What's the nicest dressing room you've ever walked into in your career? You went, wow, that's incredible. Uh, there's a lot of them and they're all trying to keep up with each other. Um, (laughs) yeah, I, I would say from a collegiate perspective, one of the ones I walked in and I said, this is pretty special was, uh, university of North Carolina men's basketball. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, just the, the, the hallway, you know, the storied uh, uh, professionals and talent that came through there. So it was pretty amazing. Um, in the professional ranks, uh, I, I was a little bit uh, uh, awe-inspired at Manchester United um, and what they had, their facilities, and it was very, very good. Um, and, and everyone's been keeping up. So it's like, guys, they've all, they've all redone it. Manchester City was very good, but they built their new facility and I haven't been there. Um, and there's been some pro teams, uh, that I visited as well that I thought were, were pretty fantastic, but yeah, probably, probably man, U was pretty special, you know, mm-hmm. into that changing room. Um, the one that made you tingle, um, it's not because it was so fancy. It's just what it stood for was, uh, England rugby at mm-hmm. Twickenham, their, their, their national stadium. And it's that warrior mentality that's in there. It's a European changing room. It's different than American changing rooms, you know, with the big, big oak lockers and, you know, comfy, you know, swivel chairs like we have in the U.S. pros. There, now they just sit on a bench and uh, it, it looks like a high school almost. Uh, it's nice, but it's no frills. Mm-hmm. But it, it, had a, it had a grit and a culture to it. It was posh. But it just stood for something, and it did. It made your hair stand on your ends. So, and I they were playing New Zealand, so you can only imagine. Well, 
I'm going to cycle back to those feelings a little bit later in the, uh, in the show. I want to start um, sort of talking about your life growing up in New York. You were youngest of six. Um, uh-huh. Was that, did you have to fend for yourself as a young youngster in a family of that many kids? Uh, or what was life like growing up? Yeah, there was a 10 year uh, difference between youngest and oldest, my older brother. And so, um, you know, the, the young memories were, yeah, just, roughing it up with, uh, with everyone. And, uh, you know, I remember having to do the goal line dive in the living room over the pillows and, uh, and the couch cushions and my brothers, my brothers would be the defensive line and I had to go over the top of them. Um, and so it was pretty easy to stop me. They just throw me. But, um, um, my next brother was, uh, um, closest to me was three years older. And so the, the two of us really hung out quite a bit. But, but there was no doubt we were on a teacher's salary and uh, there was at any time eight people or six people sitting at that dinner table. And uh, yeah, when it came time to grab that last, you know, tiny little pork chop, you know, <laughs> my, dad, my dad would say, who was a teacher, say, great, I'm going to bring this to lunch tomorrow. And we'd all, there'd be six of us staring at each other like, that's it for the meat. So it was back to, uh, you know, butter and bread and butter and peanut butter and shove a, shove it in, get some calories. It's an interesting thematic amongst the many of the guys that I've uh, interviewed in the, in the conditioning and performance realm uh, that their fathers or mothers were teachers that uh, being growing up under the, under the supervision of a, of a teacher changed the way you, you looked at school or how you uh, took yourself to school. For sure. You know, for sure. And uh, just being able to go, you know, with him to see the, uh, you know, where he taught and hang out and, and sit at his desk and play with their pencils and erasers and things. But um, yeah, it, it was good. It, it was an educational, you know, uh, discussions at the table uh, quite often. And um, so it had a big influence. And then there was teaching in the, uh, in the family. So he was a teacher. My sister went into physical education to teach and and, uh, yeah, now I'm surrounded by it. My wife is a teacher. Her mom was a teacher. Um, so yeah, it's continued. <laughs> so you originally, um, went into phys ed. Um, tell me about your decision. was that because born of sort of that influence or was it because you really liked sport or exercise? What drove you into, into that world? Phys ed was my best class in elementary school and high school. No joke. Learning did not come easy. I graduated high school with a 78 average, I think. Uh, and I worked for that. So I, I didn't have a problem with work ethic and effort. I was just dumb. And um, yeah, it just didn't click. Phys ed, I had the perfect score, perfect grades. I never missed a class, you know, straight A student. And um, yeah, I really like that. And I just connected with some of the PE teachers and I thought that was something I wanted to do. Once I got to college, things clicked. All the courses, you know, I turned into a, a B plus and then an A student. And then all of a sudden, all my sports medicine classes and core classes, I was an A, a plus student. So things clicked. So I, I got my reps in young. I struggled. I wasn't that smart, but uh, it paid off because the, it, it, you know, once I something clicked, you know, at 19 years old and I was smart again. So it worked out. Can, can you touch on that as uh, what, what you felt clicked? Was it uh, your sort of feeling that you were in the right place at the right time with the kinds of information that you really sort of got to your heart? You were finding your passion early or, or did you have an influence from a, a professor or a teacher or a colleague that you were growing up with that kind of made, made you sort of think you were in the right place? No, I, 
the core class, you know, your PE classes, your anatomy, physiology, and those things, that was easy because I was just interested in it. It was fantastic. But even the things, my father was a history teacher, so I would take history classes and I really enjoyed those. But just your general, your intro to psychology and macroeconomics and just the, the stuff you had to take that I should have really struggled, um, I didn't. And I just think when I got away from home and I wasn't coddled, that's for darn sure. I think though, I just saw the, the purpose of like, I'm, I'm up here in the woods in upstate New York in the middle of nowhere. And it's like, this is what I'm doing. And, and I just focused. I think I just, I think I just really just focused. So mm. worked out. And you were com- relatively competitive in soccer and skiing. Um, were those sports big influencers in who you've become or were they just something that, uh, that you used to sort of pass your physical, you know, desire to be physical and be out there and doing stuff in the fresh air? Well, I think it was a, there was a good competitive spirit growing up as a youngster, just with all my brothers and sisters. And, and then the group of friends, good, healthy friends that I had in high school. And um, we were successful in soccer. Again, small, not a big, big high school or anything, but we were, we were the best and um, we did very, very well. So I tasted that success skiing, Alpine skiing, just did a lot of it growing up and um, skiing and then alpine skiing. I didn't ski race at a high level, high school level, but but I was very successful. I won all those races. Now, I've worked with a lot of internationals and top juniors in the world, so it was a low level, but I was the best at that low level. And uh, so I liked that feeling uh, of being competitive, and, and I just found success regularly in those things I touched. Uh, went to college, played a division three level. Again, it's the right sized for me, for my skills and abilities. Um, but I had good success at that and I enjoyed it. It ended up, Scott, really, um, imparting things because yes, now I work with many international soccer players and, and national soccer players and with the Philadelphia union Academy and their first team. Um, but skiing, my first job was at a private ski racing Academy in upstate Vermont. So, I did a little coaching to make some money on the weekends in college. And then my first job was as an athletic trainer at this Burke mountain Academy. So yes, my skiing background helped there, but I went literally to the best junior aged athletes in the nation and many of them in the world overnight. I'd always envisioned on going to that Academy. That would, that was a dream, um, never talented enough and never could have afforded it. Um, but I read a book about that, like, remember I said how I wasn't that smart in school? Yeah, so every, 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 every other Wednesday when it was free reading day in, in English class, I just read this book called How the Racers Ski by the founder of that sports academy. I probably read it a hundred times. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't go into any other books. I just read that one. Um, the next thing I knew, Scott, I'm working at that school. And mm-hmm. I spent 14 years there in my first job, fully embedded, full go. And that's different than what a lot of young people are doing these days they don't mm-hmm. lock into one place and really see it out so that tell me how, how, how did that job opportunity come about you had obviously you'd gone th- shifted gears in phys ed and gone into atc and yeah. sort of had a therapeutic background and then uh, you get in this first job and you're obviously from what you just said it was a form of dream so how do you make a dream come true so to speak so i when i was doing this part-time teaching um uh, coaching on the weekends um, I was full into my um, sports medicine degree to become a certified athletic trainer. Uh, but again, a very strong phys ed background and bringing up for two and a half years of my college experience. The guy that hired me to, to the head coach at this ski resort locally, 
he was a PE teacher and he really was a master teacher. Um, he was very good and a very good ski coach. So he saw a lot of unique things in my ability to, to work with people and, and to teach, but also, um, to coach and things. He took me to a coach's education course, paid for it all. We went to New Hampshire and he paid for everything for me. And I met the athletic director of this new, of this uh, sports Academy, uh, ski racing Academy. They had never had an athletic trainer. And he said, we're hiring one. You're young. This fits in perfect. It's an entry level position for payment. Um, and so I had the skiing background and off I went. And mm -hmm. I also had to, I had to mount all the bindings on the skis. I was like a ski technician as well. So you had to wear these hats. Um, in the interview, they said the, um, there's a building called the ATC, the Alpine Training Center. And now I was a certified athletic trainer, acronyms ATC. So I was feeling a bit confident when they said, so have you ever mounted bindings on a ski and, and to do all that tuning and to repair ski boots and all this? And I just, yes, I have, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so while I did ski race growing up, you know, we took this shit to a ski shop and they took care of things. I knew how to tune skis, my own skis, but putting them on and all these other different nuances. So I became a self-learner. So literally on, on, on weeknights and weekends in the, in the autumn before the snow flew, I would go up and practice and practice, learn how to do it until I finally got caught by a good coach who said, you've never done this before. And I'm, nope. And he goes, okay. And he just kept it quiet and he taught me how to do it. So <laughs> you didn't have the advantage of YouTube in those days. <laughs> I did not have the advantage. Yeah, I just put a lot of holes in a lot of skis. They were, you know, they were old ones and I practiced, but so, and that really turned things. So you, you got embedded into this, you know, it'd be almost like if you were working in, 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 uh, in hockey, that you were the kit man, you were the athletic trainer and you were a strength coach. Yeah. You, 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 and you got, you found all those different nuances about what the sport is, what the culture is, what the team is and how all these pieces fit together. And you hang out and you're, you're coaching, of course, as an assistant on the Hill. Um, so I wore all these hats over 14 years, um, traditionally as a trainer. And then we had a lot of injuries, Scott. So I really had to go into that realm of, of reduce injuries. And that's when I became, you know, a CS certified strength conditioning specialist. Um, so what drove you, what drove you into that? Was it injury rates. injuries and you started saying to yourself, I need to know more yeah, about this yeah. stuff so I can, I can manage this better. Is that it? Yeah. Injury rates. And so I knew coming out of, uh, out of uh, college that sports medicine want, you know, do no harm, um, and injury prevention is a very big part of being an athletic trainer, yet they don't teach you anything about really injury prevention other than, you know, heat illness, um, some common things, mm. uh, um, health, health oriented versus, um, physically prepared oriented. Um, so, uh, my first season, uh, there, you know, it was typical school started in the, in August. Um, but when the ski season started in January, uh, that's not true. November. But we got, to, we got to January, Scott, and in seven weeks, we had nine ACL injuries, a femur fracture, a tib-fib fracture, and a medial meniscus meniscal tear. I had 12 season-ending surgical injuries um, in a seven-week period, wow. and that was, that was ski racing. And I said, oh, my God, at that level. There were some equipment issues, new, new equipment uh, that were contributing to this. The second year, I had six ACLs. So I became very good at rehabbing this. Again, they never taught you this. So you had to really figure it out. 
I came very good at it because I had a good population. I had a lot of kids to take care of. And after about uh, three or four years of this, I realized was I've got to put a stop to uh, uh, this in the sense of can I put a stop to it? Can we reduce the injury rates? So my first six years there, we ended up having, because the, the rates started to drop, my first six years we had um, uh, 3.5 injuries a year for six years, right? So we really dropped it down by just basic things. After those six years, I completely took over all of the program design of their performance training, strength training, conditioning, when they lifted, just call it like a performance director at this point. The second six years, we reduced the ACL rate to 0.5, 0.5 ACLs per year for those next six years. Mm-hmm. And we had two years with none. We had a year with two and then a year with one, right? But that average was 0. 0.05. So mm-hmm. I know that what I now look at is a common sense approach can really do it, but it's not common sense everywhere. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was progressive. It was thought through, but it was applied and it was consistency applied. And there was a full buy-in by everyone at that school. And uh, yeah, we did it. So wow. that's, nice. that was my first 14 years of my, of my work experience. Nice to have a, a sort of a Petri dish for your, your, principles and beliefs and then be able to deliver them and see whether they actually do work out. So no that's question. powerful. Yeah. Um, you, you, uh, you've been married for 24 years. Is that when you met your wife in, in, in that period of time? Yeah, that's a good question. It is. Yeah. We were up there. It's called the Northeast kingdom of Vermont. And so it's a dark, lonely place. Oh my God. So, uh, <laughs> after two or three years up there, fortunately she came up as a French teacher and, um, it didn't take long. It didn't take long. So we were married uh, like two years later. And, um, uh, yeah, we've had a very happy life together. And you had two daughters. How did you balance, um, you know, if there ever really is a term balance, but how did you manage what you, your passion and obviously a massive workload around all these rehabs and Mm -hmm. fixing skis and everything else and being a a dad and a, and a husband and stuff were, were there challenging moments in that? There are, you just a very strong, strong wife, um, Mm -hmm. who, who had her own aspirations and, uh, um, you know, she loved skiing. She was a division one lacrosse player at the university of Vermont. She enjoyed her skiing. She saw what my passion was and, 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 and supported it. Um, life was pretty simple, you know, I mean, and then we had the children and, um, you know, we made that choice to say, she's going to work less. That was her choice as well. And really spent that time as a teacher with these, with our children. Um, but, while she was pregnant, she was going to get her master's degree at Dartmouth College as well. And uh, so she's still driven. So <laughs> she stayed at home um, and then was doing homeschooling and home teaching for the local community. Pretty common in, uh, in the countryside. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, so she's just been tremendously strong. And there were, yeah, I, I would travel. I'd go away for chunks of time and, and miss a lot of things. And she kept it all together and still supports me today. And so, what Like you're in the middle of BF nowhere. Yeah. So how, how does you, what you're doing start to transcend outwards? Um, how do you start to link into the opportunities to connect with other athletes from other kinds of performance milieu and, uh, and, and start working with uh, athletes beyond this, the scope of this Academy? Yeah. So it was the top, top Academy in the world. Um, it was the first sports academy in the United States before even balletary tennis and things. 1970, it was started. And, and uh, the gentleman 
two gentlemen who started it. Um, the founder, Warren Witherall, has passed away. Um, the next guy that started it with him was a recent graduate right out of Middlebury College in Vermont, um, Finn Gunderson. And um, he was yeah probably 23 years old or so, 24. Um, I still work with Finn today. So he, would, he ended up being my boss, the headmaster at that academy. Um, he was incredibly inspirational uh, to me. Um, and then um, he now, we work together at this company called HV Sports. He's involved in coaches education. He's, he's close to that retirement age, but he still is a, a wise old owl. Um, what happened was, is we had a lot of national team, junior national team athletes, and then U.S. national team athletes. We had Olympic champions. We had, we had world champions there, junior world champions. And we would travel. So the ski world, like a lot of the hockey world or the tennis world, it's very small. And the word was out that I was doing a lot of very successful rehab programs. And then the strength training program, everyone kept, was looking at it. So in that small world, it was, it was catching on. I left and ended up working after 14 years. I worked with um, an orthopedic surgeon. He was kind of our team doctor. And what he said was, I'll give you a small space to set up a good training center. You help me in the office a couple days a week. Um, which was a nice trade-off. I learned a lot by being in that office. That's good. Um, working with other people, other injuries and things. Um, and, uh, and what happened was I got invited to this special program by a colleague of mine, Vern Gambetta. And it was outside of uh, uh, Champaign, uh, Illinois. Um, and there's a famous uh, sprint coach, Gary Winkler, uh, speed and hurdle coach and things at the University of, of uh, Illinois. And he would bring in um, like-minded individuals to this. Uh, it was like a uh, retreat, uh, almost like a Cub Scout, Boy Scout retreat in the woods. They'd invite people from around the world. They were track coaches, typically, um, some sports scientists, uh, well-accomplished. About 15 or 20 people would get invited in, and you'd just sit for three days. You'd cook all your meals together. You'd sleep in bunk rooms. And it was no frills. You know, you bring your own sleeping bag or sheets and you just talk shop. You gave presentations. You can talk. You can't cover up shit. You know, you share. You're honest. You can challenge. And uh, I got invited to that. Um, and the new performance director from England Rugby was, was in that room. And he saw what I was doing with Alpine Ski Racers. And he saw this. This was 2005 um, or three, 2003. And what he said was, we've got a couple of our England Rugby players that we want to be eligible for the 2003 Rugby World Cup, but they have knee injuries and they might not make it. But if, if we accelerate their rehab, they have a chance to be selected. So they sent them to Vermont. These guys stayed for one month in Vermont, and, um, and it was successful. And that kind of kicked things off. And uh, more rugby players and then the soccer, premiership soccer guys all started hearing about it. And they were all traveling to Vermont at that point. For about another mm -hmm. 10, 10 years, I stayed in Vermont and guys from around the world, even Australia would fly into the middle of nowhere. It was pretty fun. What are the, what you would call um, common sense deficits in the, the normal model of performance medicine or therapy that, uh, you know, I know I have my answers to it, but I'm kind of interested in yours that you think um, are missing in the way, you know, our, people are educated or brought up and, and that has clicked in your life and you sort of figured out. I think that it's, it's evolving. And the thing as I'm at 30 years now in my career, I, I 
don't even remotely consider seeing it like, well, I'm in the tail end of my career or anything. It's just still too exciting. And I, I keep making connections from things that I was thinking about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, to, to just literally a few days ago, I had to pull up a bunch of old research papers to validate things that I remembered or I thought in order to have discussions on current topics today. So what I think we're missing is this understanding of the whole. And injury is so much about the injured body part, but there's, there's not a good sound appreciation of the whole. And a lot of people will say like, no, no, train the whole body, do movements, um, functional movements, and it is about the whole person but they're not really doing anything about it. They're just saying something about it. So they're not really walking that line. Mm -hmm. And we're still caught up with a, a protection based mindset on all injuries and how we handle it. So we, we diagnose locally, we protect locally. We look at biological healing locally. And what I've witnessed now, and I see it more clearly than ever is that that process is neglecting the whole. It's neglecting the global sense of the whole person and the movement strategies required to actually enhance the local healing lesions. And it's being neglected. It's being addressed later, uh, weeks later, months later. Um, and what I feel is there's significant damage has been done. So hmm. I'm really, I'm really learning is that the very early stages of after an injury, after a surgery, I, I, I'm starting to wonder that these are the most critical times to have an influence in the middle and long-term outcomes. Hmm. And that's, that's unique. Most people aren't thinking that. Mm -hmm. What has been um, your greatest challenge in, in some sense, either convincing or um, imparting the wisdom of what you've learned to either athletes or to organizations? It's trying to break the um, written rules or these, these, these longstanding assumptions that this is the only way things happen or this is how you handle something. So medicine is really slow to change. Even though medical strategies may continue to evolve, Again, if you look at the ACL reconstruction, it hasn't evolved that much. You know, there are better techniques and things, but they still retear, you know, and they still have problems. And they are also can be very successful as well. But there's things that just don't go away, Scott. They stick and they stick for a very, very long time. Like 220 minus your age for maximum heart rate, right? You know, your listeners should know the history behind that. And if they don't, they need to look into that. It's, it's a fairly random number, yet it's, it's golden number. It doesn't go away. And a very bright uh, researching physician, uh, Dr. David Joyner um, at uh, Mayo Clinic, um, I was hanging out with him two summers ago. And what he had said was, these things are on a 40-year cycle. So it often takes 40 years to remove a common understanding and a common statement or medical discussion that had happened. You can't get rid of stuff. So 
that's that's where we are with things. You you can't walk on a repaired meniscus. You can't you can't bend the knee a certain way because you have to allow healing. You know, with ACLs, which I've done a lot of work with Scott, as you know, it's like at 11 weeks, you can't run on it. You can't cut on it. You can't laterally lunge on it. You can't do these things. At 12 weeks, it's go time. <laughs> and uh, so I've always questioned, like, it's based on a time. It's based on a calendar. It's not based on what's in front of you. So what I've found is in dealing with both professional teams and other orthopedic groups and so forth is trying to ask why behind a lot of their decisions and they're not ready to have those discussions. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't just say because, but it's way easier to go behind the litigious side of things to say, um, the risk is too high. You'll be the one that's responsible for this. You know, you can't put these guys in the water because the risk of infection is too high. And it's like that one just, that one hasn't gone away. It's, it's not true, but it hasn't, it won't go away. And I don't think it's going to, that one will go away for a very, very long time. So that's, that's, kind of big, that's one of the big challenges. I read an interesting book recently uh, called The End of Average, and it's um, it's a book really about um, a cultural a cultural sort of uh, driver in math that created averagearianism, which was essentially what was the driver of our educational system in the last, in the nineteenth century, and it really sort of created an educational system where we we all came out with sort of a certain level of ability, and it taught to the to the mass versus to the individual and i won't go into all the details of the book it's a great book but basically the author talks about how we really have to recognize individualism and the individual and in essence what you just spoke about is this concept of understanding the individual the individual circumstances and the individual healing strategies and Mm -hmm. stuff that that person's going through and we're always sort of hammering against this more average based belief system that's sort of easy to dispense, but not necessarily <laughs> creating the right kind of result, re- results that we want. You know, I had, I have a very good stage, a very good platform to ask um, or to present this, this discussion to say, um, um, are we, are we pushing um, hard enough? Um, are we willing to listen? And remember pushing hard doesn't mean, trying to un, uh, unnecessarily take risks that aren't calculated or risks that are determined and negative. It means, are we pushing the boundaries of what we're doing, how we're doing and why we're doing? So I speak at this big international soccer conference for the past seven years, and it's mostly orthopedic surgeons, sports medicine, doctors, physiotherapists from around the world. And they've given me this platform uh, because they like the message, the organizers of the conference. And I get to speak on the same stage with top orthopedic surgeons, in the world, sports orthopedic surgeons in the world. And I feel as if I am pushing against them a little bit. And, it, and it's not even a little bit. I am. And so two years ago and then this past year, uh, I evolved this, this, this slide to try to put things into really simple images and, and pictures um, and, because it helps. <laughs> and it, it doesn't try to overtalk a surgeon. It, and if it's a simple image and simple pictures, they understand you're not trying to belittle. You're just trying to cut to the chase with a, with, a, with a photo. And so what we have is this idea where you have a Ferrari, and the Ferrari represents a, a professional athlete. And then the Ferrari has a crash, you know, an injury. And then they reconstruct this Ferrari. They rebuild this Ferrari. And then on the other side, when that Ferrari goes back to the racetrack or that automobile goes back to the racetrack, it's now a red Porsche Carrera. 
It wasn't a Ferrari Formula One Ferrari. It's red. It has four wheels. It's fast. I mean, we'd all like to have it, but it's not the same. And then I had that discussion two years ago, just briefly. And then this past year, I just said, I'm just going to put it up there. And I said in a big, bold statement, is close enough good enough? Question mark. And then the next statement below it is, do you even know the difference? And that took courage because the reality is, is there are many sports orthopedic surgeons and sports medicine doctors. And for that matter, even performance coaches and physical therapists and athletic trainers, uh, they don't know the difference. And, and yet you have to, you have to know that you haven't achieved a full restoration or even a better restoration following injury or surgery. And if you don't know, if you haven't seen it before, then it's difficult for you to be an expert or to really lead that. And people just sit on their belief saying, no, this is good. We've got this, but they don't know what they don't know. Sometimes I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying they haven't seen it. What's your, been your experience? You, you know, you don't have to throw anybody under the bus. It's not my intention in the question, but your experience sure. walking into a lot of, you know, high performance um, organizations, there's a perception um, by the general public that they must have the best of the best in the room taking care of the Ferraris. And that's often not necessarily the case. Um, you know, you've seen different performance milieu, you know, and you've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, what do you think is the driver, uh, of some organizations not creating the Ferrari garage and instead, you know, just having an average garage for all these Ferraris? There are a lot of average garages. There's, mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of them. And it's, it's mostly led from what I've seen. Put it this way. There's, there's average garages from the medical side. And in my opinion, I'm seeing quite a bit more um, well above average and performance-based garages, so to speak, on the performance side. And I see an evolution of the performance staff taking place at a far greater rate than is the medical side. Mm -hmm. um, and that goes all the way down to recovery strategies, uh, which is part of prevention. That comes down to manual therapy even, that a lot of strength coaches, performance coaches are developing the hand skills um, and manual therapy skills. Um, and they're oftentimes shunned for, for doing that. They're not allowed to put their hands on the athletes. Mm -hmm. It's a different domain apparently, which is, which is ridiculous. So I see them evolving. And so therefore the medical side isn't evolving as fast. They might come up with better MRIs. They're coming up with better ultrasound. They're, you know, they have faster needles to inject cortisone. So they might have these things, um, but they're not necessarily making a change in the path of that athlete significantly. Mm. Where that comes from is, it's unfair. Many athletic trainers and most are still under the umbrella of the team orthopedic or the team doctor, which is usually an orthopedic surgeon in North America um, and other sports medicine doctors. So they only, they only develop or advance their craft to the degree that they're supported to do so by the team physicians. And many team physicians are very conservative. They, they, they're covering their ass, which I understand and things, um, but they are very conservative. So 
it's such a common language with most medical groups and pro sports. Um, it, you just know what the language is before you even go there. When you, when you actually meet a very progressive orthopedic surgeon or progressive sports medicine doctor, a non-operating doctor, it is refreshing. And I latch on to these guys because we can have some good discussions. But otherwise, they are, they are withholding the opportunities to, to develop for athletic trainers and physical therapists to the degree that they would want to do things. They're just not allowed. Mm-hmm. And so then they become complacent. And, and it's true at the college level too. They just become complacent. No one's pushing them to evolve to higher levels. Mm-hmm. What do you, uh, you've been in, you know, European dressing rooms with European organizations, other international organizations, North American. What do you see as the differences between some of the, you know, even, I would say cultural dynamics and around sports medicine performance that you would see in European or even British soccer versus, uh, you know, France, uh, Italy, et cetera. And then what's going on in Australia and rugby, you know, you're seeing a lot of different uh, dimensions of how people come at that. And sometimes there's an ignorance mm-hmm. of what the other side is doing, so to speak. I'm kind of curious as now you've seen things, what are people doing well and not so well? And what are some of the differences? It, it, it really just comes down to this. There are, there are so many commonalities and similarities in how people are um, doing the same medical, medicalized approach towards um, preparing athletes following injury or surgery for a return to team training and competition. There are so many common, common languages and common discussions that are taking place that medical community is there, Scott. Then... There's also what I see from a performance training perspective and standpoint, there are so many also common basic strategies to handle these five, 10, $15 million surgeon uh, athletes and things like that. So that said, there are places that have it really figured out and it's really good looking and it's fantastic. That's true here in the United States. Mm -hmm. So what I'm seeing is that places Pockets have it figured out and are doing an incredible job here, 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 here. But they're smaller. They're, they're, there's less of them than is the more standardized approach. Because everybody just, they just watch what everyone else is doing and they don't want to take those unnecessary risks. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, risk is critical. You must be willing to take risks in order to advance. You know, a risk is, is risk of not doing things. Is a, is a greater threat to me than a risk of doing things. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like the risk of not getting someone in the water is a greater threat than the risk of saying he could get an infection. Mm-hmm. You know? And so, or the risk of putting the guy in a brace for six weeks is far greater than walking them with good education and getting their muscles switched on, teaching them to use crutches, and trusting that they're not going to go party that night in the disco and, and mess up their knee or their ankle or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there are good places all over the world. There are average places all over the world. It's are, no one culture has it anywhere more figured out, in my opinion, than anyone else. Are there any things that you got the pulse on when you visited the ones that do have their SHIT going in the right direction that, that are common threads to, to that success in your viewpoint? Yeah, it's usually a progressive-minded orthopedic group or, or sports medicine in Europe Nine times out of 10, no, it's, it's almost 10 times out of 10, the team physicians are not surgeons. They are primary care sports medicine doctors. They typically have an exercise science 
or biomechanics background. Um, that was a part of that. Um, they understand all aspects of, of medicine in this country. They're almost all orthopedic surgeons are the head team physicians. Um, they have taken sports medicine fellowships to learn about the whole treatment of an athlete, but there's no question they are focused on surgery. That's what they do. That's their livelihood. And that's where they spend the majority of their time thinking about Mm -hmm. American sports do not have full-time in-house team doctors. There's only a few teams that have this now. Europe, this, the big clubs that is, all throughout Europe, they all have a full-time in-house primary care sports medicine physician with ultrasound units right in-house. They can do injecting and do PRP. They can do all these, right? They take care of all those athletes on a day-to-day basis. They wear training clothing. They don't wear a suit, you know, and they have sneakers on and uh, they, don't, they don't have, you know, suit shoes on, on game day. They're real. They're like an athletic trainer, but they're doctors. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. And so what that does is that allows the medical, the head physiotherapists, the sport coaches or the uh, um, um, sports training coaches, they're integrated in in a much tighter model. And they're just way more progressive. Mm-hmm. So many, not as progressive as I think they should be, but they certainly have it going on at a faster rate than most places I've seen here in the United States. Cool. Again, in the United States, there are pockets that have a really good well-oiled machine of, of athletic trainers, physical therapists, or physiotherapists as they're bringing more English guys, Australian guys in who just approach injury differently. And then they get the right doctor as well. And they're, mm-hmm. they're making a big difference, but the doctor has a lot to do. The team doctor has a lot to do in the direction and how progressive this is going to be. Change uh, tacks a little bit here. What do you feel are some of the things in, for you that have created sustainability in your, in your career that has allowed you to have a longevity in it? So I was incredibly fortunate in my first 14 years at that Burke Academy that the team doctor we had, you know, we're in the country. So he was an hour and a half away drive on a highway, no traffic. So he's far away. <laughs> He was our key guy. So when you, I got to bring athletes down to him and things, he was incredibly progressively minded. He agreed in a fast, progressive approach towards rehab or reconditioning. Um, um, he supported that 100% for me. So I had a lot of his athletes, you know, anyone who got hurt, basically he did the surgery because he was a good technician and, um, and he supported it. Go, go, go. Then my next 10 years after I left there, um, taking me to 24 years of my career, 25 years of my career, I went to this another group, orthopedic group in Vermont, where I had my own training center. But for 10 years, these guys, I went to them because they were progressive. And they opened the gates as well and supported me 100% with a sports medicine doctor and orthopedic surgeons that I leaned on for research, um, not to do the research, but give me what the data says out there. Why can't we do this? I want to do this. This is what I'm seeing. Support it. So that's all I've ever known. It's incredibly unique, Scott. Mm-hmm. In all my travels, 90% of everyone says, we've always had either a conservative doctor who just said, no, you can't do this. We wanted to do be more progressive, but they didn't allow us. Or I had a really good doctor at one team, but then I moved to another team. They've shut it down. So we can't do the things we used to do at the other team. And they're very frustrated. And so the biggest question is always, how do you get them to allow you to put a guy in water after surgery, to weight bear sooner, to begin doing certain exercises 
ahead of whatever the written protocol is. That's the biggest frustration with young professional sports medicine people and uh, strength coaches, as well as veteran and seasoned ones. And it Mm -hmm. comes down to you have to build a relationship and you have to be strong in your presentation of what the research and the data is. And you have to be willing to um, offer your experiences, which is level one evidence, good experiences with this doctor to show you why you feel you should be doing it. You've done it before, or you went and visited a colleague and colleagues were doing this and we'd like to have a discussion about it. But if, if that surgeon or that team doctor isn't coming to the table to have that discussion, then I say, good luck. Hmm. I just, I just don't know what other advice to, to, to add, Scott. I just say, good luck or leave, you know? <laughs> um, but, but you have to try a, a different strategy to bring them to the table to, to, to get a chance to discuss why you want to do what you want to do. And, and uh, yeah. What's been um, your sort of biggest Achilles heel for you of your character, the way you bring yourself to your work? What's, what's a tough part of, of being you? Um, it, it, it's typically going to be, um, that I, I lack, I, I don't have a lot of patience for average. And that doesn't mean that I, I, I don't have patience for someone who's average, but uh, learning and willing to learn and on the up, it is that average or that, that complacent individual um, um, yeah, they don't, I don't enjoy being around that environment. Mm-hmm. And so that can be for me, it can be strength coaches as well. And it can be athletic trainers and therapists and even doctors. So, so when I can ask questions to doctors, cause I do, so I, you know, I can make them uncomfortable. I, I can then get uncomfortable myself, which is good. Um, but I never, you know, put them down. I just ask why, why we can't do things. And these are my experiences. So what's hard for me is that I've had, I've had 30 years of many different experiences versus 30 years of the same experience or, you know, only a few. And I've been fortunate to have had a lot of success with a lot of elite level athletes, professional world-class Olympic with kids, high school kids, academy level athletes. And when someone says is we can't do this, I already know it's like, but we, we, we can do this because I have done this and we've done it this way Hmm. and we've gotten good results. And where I have the problem, my Achilles heel is when it is, yes, but you are taking risks and you shouldn't have been doing that. That's when I'm like, this is going to be a tough conversation. It's not a yelling match. It's just, how can I get this person to be um, willing to have the discussion. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, mediocrity and average uh, environments for me is, is tough. It's hard for me to stick around those places. What's been a personal cost for you of being good at what you do? Um, I guess it's, that's a good question, Scott. Candor is essential in a professional or high-performing environment. You, it's difficult to give, and it's very difficult to receive, but it is essential. So I'm definitely a guy that has been said, 
Bill has a very, it's very strong. He's very direct. He's got very good candor and how, and how he approaches this. And so I can be looked upon then as you're arrogant. You've got to, you've got to ease up on people, not ease up on people, but you just, you know, you come in strong. And, and so that personally, I'm like, that's not me. You know, I'm, I'm a, I am a nice person. I get along with everyone really well. But when we're having discussions about uh, right, wrong, when we're having discussions about experiences, um, and that I can back those up with a, a, a strong, detailed explanation, a justification, if when it's looked upon as, nah, he's just, he's not a team player, that's always a tough one that comes that then it, it feels like it's personal, but it shouldn't be personal, mm-hmm. but it's really easy for all of us to, to, to personalize that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the end of the day, I can often just review and say, no, I'm not wrong. You know, they just don't like how I was saying it. So it doesn't happen that often, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but to answer your question is, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a tough one when I'm, I'm misunderstood or something. Yeah. It's a good segue into a part I do in my podcast, which is I discovered a book a few years ago called The Day You Were Born, and it mixes numerology with astrology, and I think it's kind of interesting. I found my purpose in it. So you're a Gemini 6. Mm-hmm. Your purpose is to be able to maintain your truth and still play many roles, enjoying life and experiencing freedom because your moral boundaries are well-defined. Mm-hmm. The man who listens to reason is the last. Reason enslaves all those all whose minds are not strong enough to master her, George Bernard Shaw. This combination has the power to master the mind with ease. Venus gives them a strong spiritual cord, a toughness or ability to concentrate, an innate wisdom that helps them get to the meaning of things. Those with a Mercury-Venus energy may feel a strong calling to serve people and will have the ability to inspire them. Mm. It's profound. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some... Yeah, my George Bernard Shaw, I believe it was, was, what was the quote? You know, some people ask why and others ask, you know, why not or whatever. That's my favorite saying. That's where yeah. I got into the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I I heard that. That was actually presented to me. Vernon um, uh, Gambetta presented it to me. I think the very first time I had ever met him many, many, many years ago at one of his courses. And uh, and that was it. I was like, yeah, I, I ask why not, you know, mm-hmm. I... Scott, I had successfully had athletes on skis skiing five weeks after ACL reconstruction. And when people ask why, I would say, why not? You know, it's, it's, they've already shown on these ski machines, lateral movement qualities. We did it because they could, you know, remember these are flat, flat terrain. These are hero snow, perfect conditions. They go out for four runs. And then we go in and we, we do spend another hour, hour and a half doing our reconditioning. Mm-hmm. But if you think you worked in ice hockey, it's like, it's a sliding sport. You know, it, those skis on the bottom of their feet is what they do. Skates on the bottom of a hockey guy, he's safer on skates than he is walking in a, in a wet bathroom or the shower, you know, at the, uh, at the, at the arena, you know, mm-hmm. skates is where they're safe. So I've always, I've always looked at reason as to why can't we do things and then logically went down that path. So. that's that's awesome yeah that's actually my favorite saying and how i found the book was i 
I found uh, the book and looked through the the chapter that was on me, Sag 3, and I had that saying actually taped to the top of my desktop, and I went to read my purpose, and the saying after it was that saying, so I knew I'd found something that was uh, connected to me. Um, if you look back at yourself 20, 25 years ago, if you saw, if you ran into that guy, what would you say to yourself? Uh, rephrase that for me. Well, if you ran into Bill Knowles 25 mm-hmm. years ago when you were, you know, just starting out, what would you say to him? Uh, it'd probably be the same as a lot of the young people are asking me these questions today. And that is, um, how, how do you, how did you arrive at the place you are in respect to, um, having the ability to have a discussion as to why we can do certain things or why we can't. And I'm always talking about it is it is dude, I I'm 30 years into this. You're five, you know, you have to be patient and have good experiences. But I had this meeting, um, many years ago, you know, I, I did meet me, you know, with, with a couple different people mm. and they had a profound effect and, and I just stayed in touch with them. And I, and I watched what they did. I heard what their mistakes were and, um, and I learned from them. You know, they were, again, this gentleman, Gary Winkler, a, a running coach and sprint coach for Gambetta was very influential. Uh, Steve Merlin, uh, who worked in hockey, professional hockey for a little while there. Um, really good. And uh, Jimmy Radcliffe, uh, University of Oregon, was another guy. These guys, when I listened to them, they were just bringing things down to a very simple, simple discussion. And looking at, at, at the basics and looking at it from how do you deliver, how do you teach? And they weren't rehab specialists necessarily. They're all coaching and, and performance specialists, but um, it, it fit to the rehab model perfectly. So, yeah, if I met me 30 years ago type thing, I would probably have said, I need to pay attention to what he's doing. What does he read? Who does he follow? Who does he listen to? So, yeah. Well, you're going to pass from this earth one day, hopefully not for a long time, but if you do and when you do, um, how would you like to be remembered? Uh, probably as a teacher. Yeah. Cool. You know, someone that, someone that had, you know, high energy, inspired, shared, and was ultimately was ultimately a, a, a teacher. Yeah. Awesome. yeah. That's it, my friend. Thank you for taking the time. It's been an outstanding hour. So I uh, appreciate you uh, giving me an hour of your time. Uh, fantastic. That was good talk. I like, I like how you framed the question, Scott. It, it, you, you pushed me back again <laughs> against the chair. <laughs> I'm like, well, if people, you know, it's, this is me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Exactly. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time. It's good to spend some time with you, Bill, and hopefully it's not the last time. So, Cheers. Thanks, Scott. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pay, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.